0: This is all an
1: illusion Please the confusion Hey, hey Welcome to the 16th episode of Two Writers and Yang My name is Jeff Perlman I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer Former ESPN columnist Author of multiple New York Times bestsellers And a columnist for The Athletic As well as a Bleach Report contributor The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl, and this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism, to songwriting, to screenwriting, to novels, to romance, to comics, to whatever uh, I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Tom Juno, an 11-time finalist and a two-time winner of the National Magazine Award. Tom is a longtime and legendary Esquire writer who's now at ESPN, and he's the author of The Falling Man. One of the single greatest pieces of writing reporting you'll ever see, as well as about a zillion other breathtaking journalistic masterpieces that I'll never touch. So let's talk the art and crafting of journalistic masterpieces that I'll never touch, right now, on Two Writers Slinging the Egg. So Tom, I am a, uh, it's funny, I, I actually brought you here, I mean I brought you here for a lot of reasons, but I two episodes ago I had Wright Thompson on, and yeah. great writer, and His sort of thing, he was talking about different stories throughout history, and he was saying, you know, I'm not really intimidated by that story, and I'm not intimidated by that story, but I'm intimidated by the falling man. I don't think he used the word intimidated, but overwhelmed by the falling man. And I'm going to ask you a weird question about this before I get into it a little. Do you, you wrote that story 14 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And when I have people, my first book was a biography of the 86 Mets, and I have people come up to me and say, oh, that book, that book, tell me about that book. And it seems like I wrote it so long ago that I don't feel the same connection to it now that I did at the time. And I wonder when people say to you, and I know you hear it often, that story just did it for me. or That story, does it feel fresh and new and part of you? Or does it feel like something that happened so long ago that it's a different piece of your life?
0: Uh, Well, I mean, I'll just say, I mean, I'll say right off the bat that, I mean, I'm intimidated by The Falling Man. You know what I mean? I mean that that that's No, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well no, well that story was just one of those things. I mean it's it's not even lightning striking. It's it's you know, this sort of this odd voice sort of dictating itself to you as you go, and you're just you know, you're I mean you're working hard at it, obviously, and stuff, but I mean I was just sort of writing it down and and you know, once it was done, I, I couldn't imagine like doing that again. You know, it's so you know, and I think that to me, all, all great stories are that way. You know, I mean, there's just this, you know, they, they sort of, you rise to their moment or they rise to your moment. And, you know, there's so many different factors that are determining, you know, the outcome that you just really have no idea whether you can do that again. I mean, I'm writing, starting to write a book right now. And, you know, you, you want that, to happen i mean you want to be able to sort of write in a way that is completely suitable to the task and the occasion but you know you're writing a book and that's you know it's like a a year's worth of labor so how can you be how can you rise to the occasion every day for the next you know 350 days it's like that's 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 terra incognita for me i don't know whether that's you know, can happen, or is going to happen, or it's just going to be a slog. Where at the end you go, okay, well, this is what I need to do to make it better. I just don't know. Right. So, um, but so I, you know, I think that every single story that I've written that's good, I kind of don't know how I did it.
1: Interesting. How did that even? I mean, um, I remember. Look like, at I'm from New York, and I remember yeah. that picture vividly. And I shared many of the thoughts that you sort of expressed in kind of narrating that story. Um, Did someone come to you with that picture and say, let's find who this guy is, is as basic as that? No, no. The New York Times came to me
0: with that picture on September 12th, you know, 2001. Um, I opened it up. I was on page uh, seven and I looked at it and I knew, you know, right away that I was going to be writing that story. Why? Instantly. Wait. What? How
1: did you know? How did you know? That's interesting.
0: Because, because I, I you know, I think that there, um, you know, with that story, and I'm, you know, I hope that I'm not getting into, you know, sort of the, you know, the the voodoo part of of writing. But I mean, with that story, I looked at that picture, and the hair stood up on my arms, and I waited two years to write that story um, because. I just, you know, I just wasn't ready to write the story, you know, when it happened in 2001. It would have been a really, really different story. But when I wrote it in 2003, you know, when I first, when I
1: wrote the first sentence, the hair stood up in my arms. And, you know, that's, that's what that story was. The first sense of the story I have in front of me is in the, in the picture, he departs from the earth, from this earth like an arrow. Yeah. Was that an obvious, is that an obvious, like... I feel like a lot of times I teach journalism and a lot of times young journalists, they get very complicated and they get very, well, yeah, yeah. Do, I, do you feel like it's as, it's as, this is as simple, he, here's the picture and he's falling straight.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of what it, that's kind of what it was. I mean, it was just, I mean, you know, it was just one of those, it was one of those stories where, you know, the process of elimination um, was very obvious straight through, you know, straight through. I mean, you know, there's, there's so many choices that you make. In writing a story and you know most of the time the process of elimination is, is a combination of of guesswork and you know intuition
1: with that with that story it was all intuition interesting um, do you have is there a uh, I don't know if you work this way is, is there any level of method acting to writing and what I mean is you're working on that story you're working on that story you're digging deep into the story are you picturing what it's like to be him? You know, is that in your head like a lot? What is it like to be falling from building? What is it like to knowing you're going to die? Is it important to even have those thoughts in your head? Does that matter at all?
0: Yeah, I don't really, you know, I don't really think too much when I'm doing that stuff. I mean, I, I try to write sentences and the, the, thought is, the thought is in the sentences, you know what I mean? It's not like I sit there and, and you know, have that thought and then do it. I kind of do it and then have that thought. So it's 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 kind of why I don't I don't outline. It's why I don't structure, and it's why I you know I often pay the price for that in really really comprehensive painful rewrites, radical radical rewrites, and um, you know because because I just kind of feel my I kind of feel my way through. You know, um, John McPhee is that has that um, book uh, draft number four came out, which is. Um, um, a compilation of those sort of how-to essays that he did for the New Yorker over the last couple of years. And I just, you know, I mean, he, he relates such a sort of painful but straight-ahead course. But I, can't, I can't even relate to it. I, you know, I can't. It, it bears, it has no bearing on what I actually do. And, I mean, so he, his is sort of like the painful straight-ahead course. Mine is just sort of the painful course.
1: Do you enjoy it? Like, do you enjoy the writing?
0: I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy the, I enjoy the concentration. I enjoy the, the level of concentration that you can, um, have where, you know, y- you know, your, your brain is like this tumbler, uh, you know, it's like this lock and the, and the tumblers are always sort of flying around and it's, it, you know, and it feels almost like a, like almost like a random process. Like if you just like, you know, like in those movies, like where they show, you know, you know. You know, a computer trying to figure out a, a problem and it's really just sort of you know it just lands on the one and then after a zillion you know different integers flying by it lands on the three and then it lands on the four and then all of a sudden the lock opens it's kind of it's kind of like that it's you know you just thinking about it constantly and
1: it's it would you, you think about it so much it would be sort of shameful if you couldn't write a story. Did you, did you, you know, I I interviewed Wright and one of the stories he talked about was he wrote a piece about finding this one guy who fought Muhammad Ali and he couldn't find him and he couldn't find him and it took him years and it was all, it ended up being all about the journey to find this guy. Yeah. Um, How important was it for you to find who the man in the photograph actually was as opposed to the journey of finding who he was?
0: Uh, It was pretty important, I think. I I don't, I, I I never intended to do uh, um, a journey of, of finding the guy story. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of great stories that have been written, you know, the journey of finding the guy, um, but I, I didn't want that story to be um, of that, you know, of that genre. And, you know, and I think that the, that the payoff um, of sort of finding the guy was, was really just enormous. It was the Briley family and, you know, what they were able to bring to it and what they were able to tell me was just, you know, I mean, it was it's like, what, you know, here, you know, here goes the hair standing up on my
1: arms again. You know,
0: I mean, it was it was remarkable.
1: Do you still think about that story a lot or is it one of those? All the,
0: yeah, all the, all the time.
1: You do. And not just because people yeah. bring it up like it just pops in your head.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Plenty, plenty of times. I mean, I, I've never I've never lost that that feeling. I've never lost the feeling of uh, of awe. Um, of looking at that picture, of thinking of those people, and, you know, and of the experience of writing it. I mean, the experience of writing it, you know, kind of, you know, kind of fills me with awe, because it's not something that happens that often.
1: When do we, when are we allowed, like, you kind of touched on this in the story, and I thought it was very interesting, like the, uh, there was a Canadian journalist who approached one of the families um, earlier,
0: and got a very stern
1: sort of rejection from them, and I was thinking about this, and you know, we're two days removed from the Las Vegas shooting, and if a young journalist or any journalist uh, wanted to do a piece about one of the people who was shot, um, how do you know when to approach, when not to? Is there, you know, is there a sensitivity that needs time? Is it, should you, I hate to use, you know, cliche, strike when the iron is hot? Is there a way to know when to go after a story, and you think maybe when this just isn't right?
0: You know, I mean, I mean, I think there's a couple of a couple of things that you need you need to remember. I mean, number one, I mean, I just, you know, for for when journalism works, uh, I I do think that you know the 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 transaction between the story giver and the storyteller um, can be and should be a pretty profound human transaction. Um, and, but it is a human transaction in that it's, you know, heir to all the, you know, mistakes, pitbull, you know, pitfalls, um, and struggles of that. So, I mean, I think that that's like the thing that you have to remember is like, I mean, I mean, try to be, try to be a human being. Um, uh, but I think that's the second thing is that, you know, I mean, I'm amazed. I'm amazed by by how new it is. Every time I go out, I mean, there is. It's, it's why I distrust, you know, kind of manuals on the level of um, of like the John McPhee book. Uh-huh. I don't think there is any how-to. I I just think it's a it's just sort of a, a a blind stumble most of the time where you're just trying to go on, on you know, sort of some basic rules of you know decency, intuition, opportunity, all those different things, and they all play a
1: different role uh in different stories Uh, i um i read the greatest at rest last night uh your 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 piece about sort of the end of muhammad ali and um, yeah which this is going to sound weird so i read the falling man i'd read it long ago and i read again and then i read the greatest at rest and i thought the falling man was absolutely amazing and i actually think i like the greatest at Rest even i was blown away Blown away by the greatest arrest. I, I I thought it was one of the best pieces I've ever read, um, of this genre. And what I, I I just kept thinking to myself, and I wrote it down a million different places. I'm literally looking at this story is how are you here? How are you here? How are you here? You're you know describing the detail of the you know the the him being wrapped, of his, the yeah. way his head is turned. How are you yeah. there at the end of Muhammad Ali's? I mean, after his life ended at the end. Well, I
0: mean, I was there because the people I spoke to were there. You know, um, they they gave me that. And and there was I mean, there was no doubt when I was doing those interviews that they were giving me those experiences and they regarded those experiences as holy. And I was to regard them as holy in return. I mean, that was, that was, I mean, speaking once again of the, the, the hair on your arm standing up, I mean, it was just one of those things where, where people would be, would be talking to me and I'd, i get chills and, you know, I mean, there's, there's just, there's no substitute for that. You know, there's no substitute for that experience and that kind of, of, of deep, you know, unspoken knowledge. And that was the, you know, that was the, the, you know, the. The kind of the guiding light through, you know, the writing and the reporting of that
1: story. It wasn't just in the writing, it was in the reporting. I just want to read a part real quick. You wrote, um, Shakir suddenly finds himself in the grip of spontaneous necessity. He's been watching the pulse in Ali's neck, watching it surge with life after he started breathing on his own and then watching it slowly ebb. And now he leans over and with his mouth close to Ali's right ear, he sings, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Um... When you are this is something I, I think a lot of people actually struggle with. When you are interviewing someone and he's he or she is saying, Oh yeah, I was there mm-hmm. and you want to know if the t shirt the guy was wearing was red, or you want to know what the room smelled like. Like, are you an interrupter? Would someone be telling a story and you'll be like, Wait, so was he wearing a Do you remember what the t-shirt looked like? Do you are you taking notes and asking at the end? Like how are you making sure to check off your details? Um
0: You know, I'm kind of not. I'm kind of letting them tell the story. And then if it I mean, if the question pops up sort of um, organically as he is telling it, I'll I will sort of allow, you know, that, you know, to be, um, you know, meaning that I'll I'll I'll, I generally don't say and, you know, I I won't say, wait a second. Was his T-shirt red? I'll say, you know, and his T-shirt was red. (laughs) (laughs) No, right. And, and, that's a, you know, and those, are, those are kind of two different things. I try, I try to you know, try to stay in the flow of the conversation. I'm really glad that you liked the Ali piece, by the way. Oh. It, was a, it was an incredible experience doing that story.
1: Why, do you feel like, do you get a, do you, do you, you know, like, uh, so The Falling Man goes down as all-time, all-time, all-time classic, and The Greatest at Rest probably goes down as a story that people read, enjoyed, but there's been so much written about Ali that maybe it gets lost and hit, who the heck knows? Like, do you, do you sometimes feel like, hey, wait a second? this story over here, it's really good too. Or do you not care?
0: Oh yeah, of course I care. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I definitely would love for, um, you know, the, the greatest that rest to be, you know, to be read, you know, in the same kind of light that, that, you know, the falling man is, but, um, but, you know, the fact is, is that, is that, you know, Ali, you know, for all his, um, for all his greatness, you know, is a man. Um, the falling man is representative of, of so much else. And, and so, and so people read that story in a different way. They, I mean, it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's, listen, it's been an amazing thing. I mean, every year that story is posted and every year, I mean, the readership is, you know, it's, it's off the charts and, and people go to read it to find out what they felt and feel about that day. and I mean, I mean, there's, there's been no greater gift to me as a journalist than that.
1: Right. Um, there was something, you, I, I'll go back to that real quick, The, the Falling Man, because there's one point, and in a way it relates to both stories, because you have Ali, uh, you can make the argument in his, least, in his most vulnerable or his, you know, yeah. least sort of enticing viewpoint, which is dead on a table. Um, and you wrote in The Falling Man a lot which I really liked and hadn't thought about that much, this idea that we're not supposed to look at these pictures because someone has decided we're not supposed to look at these pictures. And it's okay to see um, uh, deceased firemen being carried out of a building. Right. But we're not. And I kind of felt like, but I could be wrong here, you were almost like what the fuck? This is such bullshit. Like, why aren't we allowed to look at these pictures? Right. Right. No, you know, am I misreading the anger there or the annoyance? I don't know what that, what their problem I
0: don't know is. if it I don't know if it was annoyance, but I, I definitely, I mean, when I was writing that, when I was, you know, writing that story, um, I was definitely looking to, um, you know, to make people feel it. Um, even, even if, you know, some of those sentences, you know, hurt to read. Right. Do you um I talked this? But story. it wasn't out of it wasn't out of anger. It was just sort of I, I mean I, I wanted to communicate you know that sense of awe. And you know, and and, and it's same with it's same with Ali. I mean that there's a a part in the in the Greatest at Rest where you know his body is being washed and it is It's just, it is, you know, I'm going to just use the same word as a moment that, I mean, when I, when I spoke to the body washer, I knew I had the story from that point on because I had that moment where what I thought of Ali sort of found its, its measure in, in this ritual that just made, you know, once again, the the hair stand up in my arms When, 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 the body washer was telling me that story.
1: So do you, Um, I wrote a story um, last year, no, earlier this year uh, about a basketball player in Dallas who was shot and killed entering the wrong apartment. And yeah. uh, his name was Bryce DeJean Jones. And he played for the Pelicans and he thought he was on the fourth floor, but he entered the apartment in the third floor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tracked down the shooter. And so I, I, uh, he just accidentally walked into the wrong apartment. And the guy happened to have a gun and, I wrote this whole story and I wrote a lot about the shooter and his perspective and the family of the basketball player was furious with me. Absolutely mm-hmm. furious. They felt violated. Mm-hmm. They felt like I crossed a real line. They thought, mm-hmm. you know, I said, I told them from the beginning, I really want to write the true story of what happened and who he was. And I think mm-hmm. they didn't really like the true story of what happened and who he was. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, how much do you worry or do you at all about um, upsetting people crossing a line that people did not think would be crossed, et cetera, et cetera. And, and has that happened to you in your career?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it happened with the alley story. Um, uh, Lonnie Ellie was not, was not happy that the, um, the description of him dying is in there. She, um, for reasons that are, are not known to me, um, did not want that, um, printed and, you know, it it was, and um, she wasn't mad at me. I think she was mad at the at the um, the imam who shared it with me. But she was mad, and I mean, so the so the question, your question is is a great question. It's a central question, um, but it goes back to what we were talking about before about this being, you know, a very very um, human transaction. And so, yeah, I mean, I think about it. All the time i mean i worry i worry about about hurting people's feelings um about um violating you know the trust that they've given me about um adding to the you know and because a lot of times you're talking to people um in in journalism who are in pain right and so i worry about adding to their pain you know um but then i i, I generally you know, move forward because I, I, I operate from, you know, what I hope is, um, is, you know, is a completely non-cynical place, which is, you know, I mean, these, these things happen on, on earth that inspire, um, anger, reverence, awe, whatever. And if you can, if you can
1: write those things, I think it's, I think it's a good thing in general. So, um, I try to write them. So, do you get the call from Lani Ali? Is there a is there an awkward phone call that happens?
0: Yeah, I got I got the I got the uh, the call from her um, uh, her PR man, who with whom I was I was friendly and am friendly. Um, but yeah, yeah, I I, I, de- I definitely get those because I mean I remember I remember where I was when when I got that call. So that's I mean that's how that's how much it affected me. Where were you? Um, I was, um, I was in a place where I was trying to do, um, research for a book I'm writing and I was in an incredibly, um, kind of, you know, it was, it was a, a fairly difficult place because of the nature of the book I'm writing. And I got a call from, you know, Lonnie's PR guy, basically saying that, you know, Lonnie's really upset and it, it definitely, um, turned me around that day. I mean, I, I went, I went back to, you know, my hotel and, um, did some did some contemplation rather than going out for it. I hate those calls. Those are my yeah, least yeah. favorite. Of all
1: the calls, those are the worst. Yeah, because I mean, I have, I have tremendous respect for Lonnie. Right. Yeah, those are the worst. Um, yeah. You, um, I told you this, or I, or I wrote this on Twitter the other day, but I was I randomly was in my office and I was digging through old stuff and I found this sort of black and white, ancient staples that are rusted it's right in front of me. Profile you wrote for Esquire in nineteen ninety-eight about Mister Rogers. That um, made me feel a hundred when you posted that. Yeah, it looked
0: like a, like a Matthew Brady photograph from the Civil War. Oh my it god! It made me feel like a hundred and fifty years old.
1: Yeah, it smells um, like it too. It's pretty. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, I love this story. Oh, I love this story. This story I was reading it and I was laughing out loud. And what I really liked, and again, I know it, it might feel like a different life. This is nineteen years ago when you wrote it, but. The I mean, just the lead. Once upon a time, a little boy loved a stuffed animal whose name was Old Rabbit. It was so old, in fact, that it was really an unstuffed animal. So old that even back then, with the little boy's brain still nice and fresh, he had no memory of it as young rabbit or even rabbit. So old that Old Rabbit was barely a rabbit at all, but rather a greasy hunk of skin without eyes and ears with a single red stitch where its tongue used to be. So I was telling my wife about this, how you basically wrote this story in a voice similar to what Mr. Rogers voice would be, were he writing the story in that kind of simple bass tone for kids. I, and I always, it's hard to pull that stuff off. And yet you did. And I don't know how, but you did. Well, that was
0: definitely, that was definitely not one of those stories that, um, you know, Came to me, and you know, every sentence seemed, you know, was not down on paper until it seemed right, and and then you know, all of a sudden, the story is ending. That was definitely a, a you know, a, a trial and error story. That was definitely, you know, a story that you know required a lot of um, the expenditure of a lot of words to get to the words that were um, on the page. I remember that it was, you know, definitely kind of a struggle. And I'm trying to. I, I'm pretty sure that I tried to do. The childlike voice from the very beginning, but it definitely, it definitely took a while for that to be more than an affectation, you know. And it, it
1: eventually did, but it definitely, it definitely took a while. Is writing like someone like Mister Rogers, um, for you, is that the kind of assignment where you're like, uh, okay, or you're like, yes, immediately, let's do it?
0: Well, that was a, that was a strange um, opportunity because it came from. It came out of like a like my first real sort of like disaster as a writer, which was the cover story we did at Esquire when I first got there about
1: Kevin Spacey.
0: And why was and, that a disaster? I
1: I haven't done my well because we
0: we sort of coyly outed him <laughs> in in that piece, uh-huh. and and you know, and it's you know, is it is it okay to write about someone's sexuality without their consent? Well, maybe there is, but certainly not the way I did it. Interesting. And because it was just kind of like, you know, I just got an Esquire. I was, you know, I, you know, I've been, um, you know, recruited to go there from GQ where I'd had really nothing but success. And then I did this story and, and definitely, there was like a, a sort of bravado to it. Definitely, a sort of "gee, or you know, you know, aren't I, aren't I being cool here? Aren't I being, you know, kind of badass?" And the story just blew up in my
1: face. And um, how did was, that you know, manifest it was, itself? I'm just interested, real quick. How did oh that...
0: God, it manifested itself with um, Kevin Spacey calling for me to be blacklisted from doing, you know, further celebrity profiles. It uh, manifested itself with. Um, you know, an incredibly hostile interview with—I think it was Inside Edition, if I'm not mistaken. You know, one of the one of the um, the the so-called tabloid mm-hmm. TV shows that were kind of in vogue back then. Um, you know, it manifested itself with people just like you know, just just hating it and 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 hating me. You know, it was it was that it was. Uh, I mean, thank you know, I thank my lucky stars that you know, Twitter hadn't been invented there because I definitely would have broke broke Twitter that day. Right. But um, but anyway, it was just like it was but it was I, I you know, I think back on it, you know, fairly, fairly often in that it was just it was just uh, a story that was that, whose motivation I don't think was was pure. So, um, so you blame yourself out, like you look back I do. and think I
1: suck. I do. yeah,
0: I do. I do. I do. You know, I mean, if you read it now, maybe maybe it, I haven't I haven't read it. I have the, I have the cover on my on my um, office wall so that I'm, I'm always reminded of like what can go wrong. But um, anyway, so I, I, I read, I read, I wrote that and then we were going to do uh, this Heroes issue for Esquire and one of the assistant editors there, you know, you know, thought it would be like, you know, wouldn't this be really interesting if we got Tom to do the Mr. Rogers story? Because like, wouldn't that be cool? Like the, you know, the bad yeah. guy doing a story about the good guy and I think that we know once again I had um, the the choice there whether I was going to do this sort of sort of snarky story full of sort of you know bad guy bravado or whether I was gonna just kind of take what Fred gave me and that's what it turned out to be I mean you know I was I was in trouble as a writer when I went to see Fred. And I was in trouble because I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Was I supposed to be this sort of, you know, notorious guy or was I going to be sort of, you know, true to myself, really? And, um, you know, Fred gave me no choice in that matter. Uh, Fred wouldn't answer a single <laughs> one of my questions. I spent a lot of time with Fred Rogers and, you know, and, and he would, you know, I would ask him a question and you know he'd be like, well, I don't know, Tom. How do you feel about it? you know? And, and and you know he never. I mean, and I I mean this literally. He never answered one of my questions. So I was. He focused on me the whole time, and he focused on me the whole time because he knew I was in trouble.
1: And that's what made the story. What you know, what the story was. Now, what if you? Um, serious question. Number one, you're doing a profile on Fred Rogers. Do you do a background check on fred rogers and number two what if you find out fred rogers uh got arrested for solicitation back in 1972 um well then it would be a really different story
0: but (laughs) i I didn't do i didn't do um any um kind of background check uh on on him at the time and you know I, I as it turned out I don't, I don't i don't think i had to i don't think he actually was uh, arrested for solicitation back in 1972 yeah, i don't think so either yeah. i think he i think he was I, I he was one of those few people that you meet who are exactly you know kind of how they portray themselves to be um, with all the eccentricity and weirdness of that you know i mean fred was not uh, a regular you know person uh, right. he wasn't like you know one of the guys by any stretch of the imagination so um, So I, you know, I got, I got, I got lucky with that. I, I, you know, I think that now I'm a little, I'm a little bit more um, careful, but you know, I I mean, I'm doing a, I'm working on a story right now for ESPN in which um, I set out to do one kind of story, did not really do a lot of background checking on the subject and it has been just a nonstop, carnival of surprise
1: um is that good though isn't that a good thing
0: it's i think it's great i I think it's like the best thing that can happen to you as a
1: writer right i would say one of the flaws in the book writing process is you write this proposal telling them what the book is going to be about and you really should have no idea what the book is going to be about
0: right you know no i think that's exactly right i mean i think that that's why you know i've never written i've never written a book so the book that I'm writing now at this at this fairly advanced stage of my career is my first and one of the things that has always scared me off books is the proposal. Right. For that reason right. I I you know I mean what is revealed to you as a writer as you sit down and start writing seems so essential that I I can't even imagine starting to write starting writing knowing what's in store.
1: I would agree, um, but if you think that's the worst part of writing a book, wait till you have your first signing at the Bedford, New York Books a Million, and they forget to ad- <laughs> and they forget to advertise it. That'll be great. They'll love that. Well,
0: I, but I'll steal myself by watching Spinal Tap. You know, <laughs> with,
1: uh, the best is when you're at the signing and. Um, there's one guy there and he's only, he doesn't even know the sign he's going on and he sees you're sitting at the table and he feels really bad for you. So he talks to you, but doesn't actually buy the book. He just, talks to <laughs> that's always great. Um, yeah. Let me ask you a final thing. And we, we touched on this briefly, but then we got disconnected. Um, you and I are both products of uh, what would be called not mainstream journalistic institutions. You SUNY Albany, me university of Delaware. Uh, we don't have, you know, I, 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 like when I got to SI, it used to be, there was this thing, the Princeton pipeline mm-hmm. and right. it would be, right. you know, all these guys from Princeton. And I always had a, a chip on my shoulder and a little bit of a go fuck yourself kind of thing about having gone to Delaware. Um, yeah, yeah. and Albany was my second choice. So you right. must really have that going to Albany. Did you, um, do you wear that with you? Is that something you wear?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, like in The Falling Man, there's like this thing where like, you know, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be looking at this photo. And the story is something of a reaction to that. Well, I mean, you know, my reaction to being in like the offices of Esquire or something is, you know, you're not supposed to be here either. You know, you're not supposed to be here um, being a graduate from from a you know uh, from a state school, so um, you know I've never I've never quite I've never quite you know lost that feeling of of um, that I'm you know encroaching on turf that's um, been declared um, off limits um, without my knowledge. So yeah,
1: right. The Great Danes of Albany. Um...
0: <laughs> the Great Danes.
1: Yeah, and the Blue But Bans I think
0: probably. that th- I just think that that's just such a you know I think it's a I think it's a fairly important thing i i you know i'm, I'm pretty i'm pretty motivated right. and have remained pretty motivated throughout that's never that's never gone away and um I, I think that the albany experience has something to do with that
1: i don't know if you felt this i, I certainly did like i when i went to delaware they're like all right you want to cover men's basketball go cover men's basketball you want to cover so and so you know when you go to a syracuse or a northwestern there's a waiting line there 's a line you have to wait maybe you 'll start on uh cross country or whatever maybe you you'll do something small and I feel like, I do feel like when you go to small schools you 're not going to get have the alumni connections but you 're going to get the opportunities
0: yeah i didn't i didn't take those opportunities i didn't write for the the um, the Albany asp was the student was the student paper right. and i didn't write for that except for some sort of like kind of you know, super highly literary short essay or something like that. I forget, I forget exactly what I wrote about. might've been like a book review, right. but um, I, I didn't even take advantage of that. But I did, you know, I mean, the thing that, the thing that has struck me now that I'm writing a book that is, you know, touches upon, you know, my life back then, um, is that I really, really wanted to write and really more than wanted to write. I needed to write. I mean, my wife found a box of, you know, some of my old papers, and there were these index cards, these um, business cards from when I was selling handbags from Felipe handbags with my name on it. And they were covered with microscopic writing in in, in microscopic handwriting. Wow. Where I was just I was just covering these cards in in writing. And, um, you know, and there's that there's that German writer, uh, Robert Walser who eventually, you know, went to the sanitarium um, and he was, you know, he had written novels and stuff. And he went to the sanitarium and just like kept on writing, but writing like smaller and smaller and smaller until he like literally like disappeared into it. And I look at it and, and it's like kind of upsetting because like my handwriting is not, like, not that much different in these things. I was I was really, really um, You know, somewhat maniacal about it.
1: Right. This is a final
0: awkward question,
1: but can you hook me up with a handbag? Do you do you do you know anyone? Is there any way you can hook me up with? I would love a handbag. You
0: know, the 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 United States handbag industry, such as it was, is pretty much gone. But yes, uh, I can I can take you to three thirty (laughs) fifth Avenue. Uh, which is now um, in what is called Koreatown, but mm-hmm. used to be used to be in the handbag district. And there are still some handbag businesses there. And if you want to get a really nice purse uh, for, as a gift for somebody, um, I, I would definitely uh, be able to hook you up.
1: You know, a guy, I know
0: a guy who knows a guy,
1: right? For sure. You. Um, well, listen, Tom, seriously, thank you so much for doing this. I uh, might, my- You'd admire you admire of your work, obviously, and I, I really appreciate the time here. Oh, it was great talking to you. It was a lot of fun. I want to thank today's guest, Tom Juno, for joining me on Two Riders and Yang. You can follow Tom on Twitter, at Tom Juno. One can listen to Two Riders and Yang on both iTunes and on Bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. Again, the music is from the legendary MC White Owl. Thank you so much for joining me. And remember, keep writing.